Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Welcome in. Here. Episode four. We. The podcast. The Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Wednesday, November 10th, 2021, people. Hope everybody's doing well, hope everybody had a great night, and hope everybody enjoyed the heck out of having college basketball back. It is so good to have college basketball back, and let's get into today's show, because this time of year, uh, just for people who are kind of new to the show, I am still traditionally going to lead the show with college football right up until the end of the college football playoff and the end of the season and all that good stuff. But on a day like today, where we had two signature games at Madison Square Garden, Duke, Kentucky, Kansas, Michigan State, we will do the unusual and open with college basketball, full reaction to the Champions Classic, Kentucky against Duke. Duke obviously wins that one. And in the first game, my preseason national champion, Kansas Jayhawks, take care of business. So we will get to college football down the road. I do want to talk about the new college football playoff rankings. I actually had two major takeaways from that one. Do want to talk about a little bit about my boy, Scott Frost. I've been speculating on this show for weeks. Is he going to be back? Is he not going to be back? We got our answer, so we will talk about that down the road. Uh, if you don't care about college basketball till March, uh, feel free to fast forward for about 15, 20 minutes as I recap what I saw on Tuesday night. College basketball is back. So with that said, let's get into it. Topic of the day. You all know what it is. It is that college basketball, as I just said seven times in the last minute, it's back, baby. And I'll just say, before we get into Champions Classic this, Trevor Keels that, Ochai Abaji that, it is just so great to have college basketball back and so great to have fans in the stands. I don't think there is any doubt that the two sports where fans make the biggest impact are major college football and major college basketball and it just did not feel the same last year and I do think that was a big part of the reason why schools like Kentucky why schools like Duke why schools like Michigan State all struggled throughout the regular season and so to see games with fans in the stands and it wasn't just Madison Square Garden which looked electric on TV we had a writer from Aaron Torres online there who said it was as good of an atmosphere as he has been in I will actually be at Pauley Pavilion on Friday for Villanova UCLA so I can't wait to get back into a full arena but it wasn't just Madison Square Garden 
I watched some of the Arkansas game and Bud Walton Arena was rocking. I watched a little UConn Central Connecticut State, and I'm not saying that Gamble Pavilion was vintage Gamble, but it looked really like a great atmosphere for college basketball. Same with Assembly Hall in Indiana. Same with Coleman Coliseum in Alabama. Same with uh, Rocky Top Tennessee. Rick Barnes' squad looked good on their opening night. So first of all, just so great to have fans back in the stands. But with that said, let's get to the games that you care about. Let's get to the two games in the Champions Classic. Duke takes care of Kentucky in the first game. The Coach K retirement tour is officially underway. And then, of course, or actually that was the second game, but the bigger game. So we'll start with that one. Then we will get to Kansas beating Michigan State in the first one. And as far as the first game is concerned, Duke, Mich uh, Duke, Kentucky, excuse me, I think my biggest takeaway is this. Listen, we can talk about the Coach K retirement tour, how exhausting it's going to be, how he's going to get a rocking chair in every city that he goes to. That man can still coach a basketball team, and we criticize and we critique, and yes, there are a lot of things that he does that I don't love. I don't love how he handles some of the media stuff, how he handles the ref, how he talks to people, how he does a lot of different things. But at the end of the day, Coach K has his teams ready to go, ready to lock, ready to go, locked in, day one, hour one, minute one, and I just thought it was a really impressive effort for a team that relied heavily on two freshmen and for a team that, frankly, kind of had to juggle the lineups throughout the night as Paulo Bancaro went out with cramps, Wendell Moore came in and out, uh, Trevor Keels came in and out for a minute. And so I just thought overall it was a great effort for Duke. I know we don't like to give Duke credit for anything. I thought they looked really good, really prepared, really ready to go. I think you can argue that probably Michigan State was the least talented team of the four in this field. And so while Kansas's win was bigger, I think you can argue that Duke's win was more impressive overall. In terms of the team itself, listen, I know everybody wants to focus on Trevor Keels and, and Paolo Bancaro, and we're going to get to them in a minute. I thought the biggest takeaway for me, Duke's defense was awesome. And Coach K, to his credit, has put together a big, athletic, lengthy lineup, and I thought it gave Kentucky fits all night long. Uh, Mark Williams is a seven foot one center that didn't play a ton. He only played 18 minutes, but around the rim made a difference with three block shots. Paolo Bancaro being seven feet or, uh, you know, six, nine, six, ten, whatever he is on the perimeter created some problems out there. And I just thought overall, that was my single biggest takeaway. Everybody else talking Paolo. Everyone else is talking Trevor Keels. What I saw was a Duke defense that did not allow Kentucky a clean look really the entire night. And that's actually one of the positives from Kentucky that we'll get to in a minute is that Kentucky was still able to shoot from beyond the three-point line, 7 of 18, 39%. That's actually a positive for Kentucky because I thought the Duke defense was awesome. I thought they fully locked down Kentucky from the beginning, and I just thought it was a complete, complete effort, which again is a credit to Coach K on opening night having a roster that started two freshmen and two sophomores that really didn't get that much experience last year because of COVID to have as good of a defensive effort as they did. In terms of everything else, what I would say, let me, let me, let me tell you this, okay? So I tell you guys all the time, don't trust most of this media that covers college sports, that covers sports in general. They don't know what they're talking about. And to me, I don't think there's a better microcosm of it than what we saw last night after the game from the media. 
I woke up, uh, or you know, I, as I was getting ready to go to bed, I saw all these articles about Paulo Bancaro. This tweets about Paulo Bancaro. Paulo Bancaro was awesome, and I want to talk about him. But anybody who watched that game that did not come away saying that Trevor Keels was the single biggest story and the single best player on the floor on Tuesday night, not talking about his draft stock, not talking about where he could go in the NBA draft, not talking talking about the game on Tuesday night and what mattered at Madison Square Garden, Trevor Keels was the X factor. And to me, it's again, it's a little bit of a credit to Coach K. This was a guy that, yes, he was a five-star, but he wasn't a can't-miss, no doubt about it, give the ball this, give the, give this guy the ball and let him do what he does guy coming out of high school. He was a guy that was physical, that was powerful, that had strength, but not a guy that you thought was going to go into Madison Square Garden on opening night and do what he did for Duke. Only, like I said, he was the best player. Finished with 25 points, 10 of 18 from the field. And so uh, in that effort, in that game, what I saw was a guy that could get to the basket anytime he, uh, he wanted, that could physically overpower Kentucky's guards. And it's really funny, right? Because again, we'll talk about Paulo Bancaro, who I think is probably going to be the best player in college basketball this year, the number one, one, uh, number one overall pick in next year's NBA draft. Kentucky had an answer for him. Kentucky put Jacob Toppin on Paulo Bancaro, and Paulo Bancaro really couldn't do anything. It's not a knock on Paulo. Jacob Toppin had him shook, though. Every time he touched the ball and Jacob Toppin was on him, he was getting rid of that ball like a hot potato. And so the difference was Trevor Keels. Kentucky did not have a guy to contain him. Kentucky did not have a guy to stop him. So credit to Trevor Keels. And listen, we have these games sometimes in the Champions Classic where everybody is watching. It's the first game, and we overreact. Um, you know, I go back to even two years ago. Kentucky beats Michigan State. Michigan State came in as the number one team in the country with Cassius Winston. Tyrese Maxey was awesome. And Tyrese Maxey was like the story for three or four days. And by the end of the year, he was really, really, really good. But Emmanuel quickly was the best player at Kentucky. And so when I look at that, I could see a very similar situation in this game where Trevor Keels, everybody's talking about him right now. And as time goes on, it's Paolo, it's A.J. Griffin, it's guys like that, Wendell Moore at Duke. Um, but I thought Trevor Keels was the difference maker and the X factor on Tuesday night at Madison Square Garden. Really quick, I do want to hit on a few other things with Duke. One, Paulo Bancaro was awesome. I mean, I know I just said he was shook by Jacob Toppin, and I think he was, but he finishes with 22 points, seven rebounds, two steals, and he looks like what a number one pick should look like. Six foot ten, can handle the ball. By the way, I will say this when he committed to Duke, there was a lot of pushback from Kentucky fans that essentially the reason that he committed to Duke was that Coach K was telling him that he could handle the ball and he could make plays off the dribble. Well, that's exactly what he was doing on, on Tuesday night at Madison Square Garden. So, um, you know, uh, Kentucky, uh, you know, I don't want to criticize John Calipari too much here because there's one, he's a great recruiter. Two, uh, there's other things to criticize him for after Tuesday night. But, uh, you know, in the recruiting process, Paolo wanted to be a, a, a modern player, a new age player, a guy that could make plays, uh, not just going down to the low, low to the low post and getting set there and making plays. And that's exactly what he did on Tuesday night. So credit to Coach K. He sold him a vision, and it's clear that he's letting him execute that vision in his final season. The last thing I would say really quick, and, and by the way, Bancaro was awesome. 7 of 11, like I said. A couple nice little step-back jumpers. Really just showed a complete game. Like I said, really showed why I believe he's going to be the number one pick in the NBA draft. And finally with Duke, all I'll say is this. Night one, you don't want to overreact too much, but 
I'm in the overreaction business, baby. And what I would say is, while there were certain teams that are highly ranked that looked good against bad opponents, and by the way, certain teams that were highly ranked that did not look good, Duke, it's night one. We don't want to overreact. They got all the makings of a team that could be really, really, really good throughout the season. They have the makings of a team that could be playing in New Orleans. I just look at the defensive effort more than anything else. Offense is going to come. Offense is going to go. But you look at them. The one concern with Duke would be three-point shooting. They were not great from behind the arc. They only shot on the night one of 13 from three. But they got the playmaking guard. They probably have two or three of them when you factor in Jeremy Roach and Wendell Moore. Paolo Bencaro looked like a number one overall pick, although, again, Trevor Keels was the biggest story of the game. And overall, I just love the defensive effort. And so in a down ACC where Virginia lost on Tuesday night, where North Carolina looked good but not great, I, I start to sit there and look at the ACC picture behind Duke. They're starting to look like the best team in this conference, maybe by far, and we will see what happens from there. But overall, good, good night overall from Duke. I know we like to poke fun at him, make fun at Mike Krzyzewski, whatever. He had his team ready to go. They were locked in. They were the better team. They were the deserving victor. Now let's get to Kentucky because I think it's really interesting, and I'll say this for Kentucky fans. I, I was kind of searching on social media after the game, trying to get a feel for how does everybody feel, all that. And I do think there was that polarizing fringe group that was like, nothing's changed from last year. We stink. We're terrible. We're awful. Fire everybody. Nothing's going to work. Tear it down and build it up. That part of the fan base absolutely exists, but that part of every fan base exists. Go on Twitter after Alabama plays a close game in football but wins, or Ohio State loses their one game a year, and you're going to have that in any uh, fan base period. What I would also say is in going in in social media, kind of just getting the gauge of the fan base, and I know social media isn't a be-all, end-all. It really isn't. I understand that. But at the same time, I was actually surprised by how many Kentucky fans kind of took the 30,000-foot holistic view and said, yeah, we lost, but we played a really good team on opening night, and there were actually signs of positivity coming out of this game. And so let's get into it, because I don't think Kentucky played anything close to its best effort, and they still were able to keep it, uh, you know, they, they were able to, to fight, they were able to play hard, and they were able to, uh, at the very least, let me say this, they played a lot harder and a lot tougher than they would have last year. Last year, uh, somebody goes on a four, you know, 6-8-0 run against them. They fold. This year, that was not the case. In terms of why I would not be concerned if I was a Kentucky fan, one, I think Duke's going to be really good. And I do think that was kind of one of my bigger picture takeaways is, on the one hand, I do think you can see that this Kentucky team throughout the season is probably going to struggle a little bit with super lengthy and super athletic teams. That was one of my thoughts. I don't think you can deny it when Oscar Shibway, your center, is probably six foot eight, six foot nine, and not super, super athletic himself. Uh, Severe Wheeler, not super athletic. Kellen Grady, not super athletic. So I do think that was kind of a concern coming out of that game. But what I would also say is, I know these college basketball rosters well. Outside of Gonzaga with Chet Holmgren and Drew Timmy, I can't think of anyone besides Duke that starts a seven-footer with Mark Williams, a six-foot-ten guy with Paolo Bencaro, and guards that are crazy lengthy long. And so if you're a Kentucky fan freaking out, we couldn't run an offense, we couldn't do anything, we couldn't do this, we couldn't do that, let me tell you, I know these SEC rosters. Alabama doesn't start anybody taller than about 6'8", 6'9", maybe 6'10", one guy. Arkansas doesn't start anybody bigger than 6'8", 6'9". Tennessee has some big guys, but they're young. This was a team the likes of which you may never see the rest of the year. I'm telling you, I'm looking at Kentucky's schedule right now. 
I'm telling you, Louisville doesn't have dudes like Duke does. Um, you know, LSU doesn't have dudes like Duke does. Auburn, maybe. I guess Auburn is probably the one, now that I'm thinking about it, Walker Kessler and, and Jabari Smith. There aren't very many teams that you are going to face all season long that have the guys that Kentucky has. And if I was a Kentucky fan, if you're worried today, well, we're not big enough, we're not athletic enough, we're not long. I'm just telling you, you're not going to face a team as deep and as athletic as Duke probably the rest of the year, Auburn being the one exception. At the same time, what I would also say is on top of that, I think another thing that is worthy of consideration when we're talking about Kentucky is this, is the fact that you lost by eight and won. Your best player, your most important player, really didn't play that well. I mean, Ty Ty Washington, for people who don't know Kentucky's roster, Ty Ty Washington is their star freshman, projected by most people kind of as a top 20, top 15 type NBA draft pick, and he did not play well. And the thing is, too, it's not as though he was not playing well coming into this stretch. Played very well in both exhibition games, looked confident, looked cool, looked relaxed, looked like the guy that we all thought he would be when he was a top 10 recruit coming out of high school, okay? Well, on Saturday, on Tuesday night, excuse me, against against Duke, he had probably what might end up going down as his worst game of the entire season. Finishes with nine points, three of 14 shooting, 0 of two from three. And so when you look at the fact that you may never face a team that looks like Duke again for the rest of the year outside of Auburn, and then on top of that, your best player or your most important player did not play well at all. I actually think that's an incredibly positive sign for Kentucky because, like I said, sometimes it just takes a little while with freshmen, and I don't think he is going to play a game like that the rest of the year. And again, you look at who Kentucky has to play, that might have been the worst possible matchup on opening night. I think on top of that, you got to consider who you just played. Duke's a real team. Like, like I watched all these teams. Listen, I love my boy Mike Woodson. Indiana struggled against Eastern Michigan. Um, Arkansas struggled against Mercer. Virginia lost to Navy, okay? David Robinson isn't on Navy anymore. Navy ain't walked. You played a really good team if you're Kentucky. You competed, you played hard, and you did it without your single best player doing what he needs to do. And I think he's only going to get better. We see this sometimes with the freshmen. I always go back to the year that Tyler Hero was at Kentucky. You can probably find tweets if you work hard enough, but the year that Tyler Hero was at Kentucky, he was probably one of the 10 best players in college basketball by the end of the season. But there was a stretch in November and December where he could not hit an open jump shot and he could not defend a, a, a chair, right? And everybody was saying, you can't play this kid. He's not ready. And Calipari just kept putting him out there, kept putting him out there, kept putting him out there. And by the end of the year, he was a difference maker. I think that could be the deal with Ty Ty Washington. Again, you don't want to get too high on the Trevor Keels praise, but you don't want to get too low on what Ty Ty, Ty Washington's limitations are. On top of that, I would also say there were actually some positives as well. One, Oscar Shibu was awesome. 17 points, 19 rebounds, okay? 17 points, 19 rebounds against probably the biggest front court that he's going to play all year. Now, I know you're not going to get 19 boards a game, but if you can get 12, 13, 14 rebounds, 5, 6, 7 offensive rebounds a game, guess what that means? You know what that means? That means that... Uh, that's five, six extra possessions, and that's five, six extra shots potentially at the basket. The other good thing, speaking of shots at the basket, for all of the struggles, Kentucky shot seven of 18 for three. And I think if you're looking for any positive to come out of this game, they can shoot the basketball. Kellen Grady was awesome. Severe Wheeler's shot is much improved. Keon Brooks' shot looks much improved. Ty Ty Washington, give him some time, he's going to get there. Davion Mintz made a three off the bench. So the things that you wanted to see, you now are starting to see. They weren't there on Tuesday night, 
But at the same time, you're playing a really good team, and the things you wanted to see are there. You have three-point shooting now. You have the tough physicality down low in Oscar Shibway. And oh, by the way, one more thing. On top of that, Severe Wheeler's a real point guard. Now, I said it on I said it when he committed, and I said it on Twitter on Tuesday night. You're going to have to take the good with the bad with Severe Wheeler, okay? In a lot of ways, he kind of reminds me of what's going to happen at Kansas this year with Remy Martin, where Bill Self's going to have to kind of beat the bad habits out of Remy Martin, okay? Uh, he's going to have to beat the bad habits out of him, get him playing a more... Um, smarter brand of basketball. I don't think that's unfair to say. And I think it's kind of the same thing with Severe Wheeler. Severe Wheeler, I have no doubt, was able to get away with some crap under Tom Crean because he's Tom Crean. He doesn't know what he's doing. He didn't have anybody else. And so with Severe Wheeler, I think you saw the pluses and minuses of what he can do. On the one hand, finishes with 16 points and 10 assists. That's a positive. On the other, obviously had a few shots blocked at the rim, needs to be smarter. But he also, on the on the negative side, had seven turnovers. I think the hope of your Kentucky is that those seven turnovers by the end of the year turn into three or four. And if they turn into three or four, that means that's three or four more open jump shots that you get that you're hopefully making. And so when I look at how Oscar Shibwe played, how Kellen Grady played, the fact that Severe Wheeler is better than any point guard that you had at any point last year, I actually think there's some positives to take out of this game. I know you want to beat Duke. Duke looked really good. And again, what, I'll say this, a couple things, and we'll wrap on, on Kentucky Duke. You learn more from playing good teams than playing bad teams. Kentucky could have opened against Robert Morris, who they play on Friday. They could have opened against Eastern Washington. They could have opened against Northern Illinois. They opened against the Duke freaking Blue Devils, and they lost. One team had to lose, one team had to win, and I thought that overall the positives outweighed the negatives even though the win the win did not happen I would also say again uh, you play Michigan State if it just so happens that this year you're playing Michigan State in this event instead of um, instead of Duke you probably come out with a win and what I would also say is don't get too high and don't get too low because two years ago you beat Michigan State on opening night you lose to Evansville a few days later so I think this will be good this will be humbling and the final thing I'll say about Kentucky and it's true with Duke as well I like the effort I like the fight I like the fact that they competed. I like the fact that they fell down and made plays and made defensive stops. I watched this team a lot last year. They never did that last year, uh, uh, you know, when they had B.J. Boston and Devin Askew and all those guys, and we don't have to kind of relive the past. But at the same time, this was a team that fought. This was a team that had effort. This was a team that came back, and that was not something that we would have seen at all last year. So, again, Glass is half full. You got a couple games here to get right. You don't play another Power 5, Power 6 team for a month until the beginning of December. So get right. Figure it out. You'll be okay. I actually thought there were positives coming out of this game more than negatives. Really quickly, what I would say is the first game, Kansas against Michigan State. I don't think we have to spend a ton of time on this simply because uh, these two teams kind of look what I thought they looked like. First of all, Michigan State, um, we, we talked about it. They don't have that one obvious go-to guy. Okay, so Michigan State's problems, I think, are multifold. One, their point guard last year, Rocket Watts, didn't work. He transferred out. This year, they bring in this kid named uh, Tyson Walker from Northeastern. And everybody loves the high-scoring superstar transfer from the small school. And I always say, it takes time. It takes time for these guys to figure it out when you get to the high major level. And I think you saw that from, from this kid last night. Two points, three assists. 
or two points, three turnovers, excuse me. I think that's part of the problem for Michigan State. They don't, uh, the point guard is going to take time, and they don't have the one guy that can take over games, okay? Uh, Trevor Keels took over that game for Duke. Um, Ochai Abaji took over the game for Kansas. We'll talk about him in a minute. Um, even with Kentucky, Severe Wheeler can make plays. He can get to the basket. It might be on somebody else to make a shot, but Severe Wheeler can do what you need to do when you have the ball in your hands late and you need a play made. Michigan State just doesn't have that guy, and so because of it, I just think this is kind of who they are this year. Is I think they're they're probably I said it on Tuesday night. I I you know I, I like Kansas a lot this year. People they didn't play anybody. Well, I mean. I don't think Michigan State's like a top 15 team. I think they're somewhere between 20 and 30, though. I think they're about the fourth, fifth best team in the Big Ten. I think there'll be about a seven seed come in the NCAA tournament. And I think when that happens, when you look at Kansas's win, that's like a one beating an eight, a two beating a seven. You win by 13, you win convincingly, you win going away, and you move on to the next round. And that's what I thought I saw from Kansas. So for Michigan State, it's going to be an evolving, developing thing. But I can't sit here and crush Michigan State because it's kind of what I was expecting. I would say they have a big name, big man named uh, Marcus Bingham, who I thought played well, looked physically different, physically better than he did last year. Gabe Brown hit a couple threes, and the kid, uh, A.J. Hogard off the bench, I thought played really, really, really well for Michigan State. But for Michigan State, it's going to be a work in progress. Um, the great thing about Michigan State, though, we're going to start to see them over the next couple weeks because they play real teams. They play Butler in a few days. They play uh, Louisville in the Big Ten ACC Challenge. And then, of course, uh, they also play, by the way, in that Battle for Atlantis tournament with UConn, Auburn, Baylor, uh, VCU, a bunch of really good teams. So we're going to see more of Michigan State. But I just thought they kind of were who they were, who we thought they were going to be really talented pieces. But how do they all fit together remains to be seen. Then there's Kansas. And let me just say this. So during college football, I picked Georgia to win the national championship. They are the definitive best team in the country. And every time I talk about my dogs, I go, rrr, rrr, rrr. so what am I going to do with my Jayhawks? Is it going to be a rock chalk Jayhawk game? Is it going to be a caca, caca? Is that what a Jayhawk does? I don't know. But how about my Jayhawks? Caca, caca. Let's get into them. Let's talk about them. And I'll tell you. Uh, this was my preseason national championship pick, and it is for the reasons that we saw. This is a deep... Let, let's backtrack. Bill Self's best teams historically. I told you on Tuesday's preview show, if you missed it, go back and listen. Bill Self's best teams at Kansas have always been the teams that have a bunch of veterans, a bunch of older guys, a bunch of guys that have been in the system for two, three, four years and know what it takes to win playing Bill Stealth's brand of basketball. I'm not an X's and O savant. I don't know what he does that's any different from Tom Izzo or John Calipari or Mick Cronin or Chris Mack. I just know that older players do better in his system than younger players do. And so because of that, that was why I like this team. Four starters back, basically four guys who averaged double figures last year for Kansas in this game or, 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 or returning to this team. And they're just deep and experienced. And then the one thing they were missing was really a playmaking guard. And they got that from Remy Martin in the transfer portal. And so a couple things on the game specifically on Tuesday night. First of all, uh, I don't know how many of you even saw this. I didn't really talk about it because on this podcast, I don't know that it's that much of an interesting talking point. But Remy Martin was picked as the preseason Big 12 player of the year. And I know for a fact I said, I was like, you know, he'd be three, four, five on my list. I don't even think he's the best candidate on his own team. That guy is Ochai Abaji, and Ochai Abaji showed that on Tuesday night 
29 points for Ochai Abaji. And for people who don't know his story, it's actually pretty cool. Let's take a minute and appreciate who Ochai Abaji is and what he's about. This is a guy who is a fourth-year senior who came in as a really kind of skill development guy, needed a lot of work. They talked about it a little bit on the broadcast on Tuesday night, was a guy who grew up playing soccer, was a guy who didn't have a ton of background playing basketball. And when he came to Kansas, the expectation was going to be that he was going to redshirt as a freshman and not even play. That, of course, though, was the year that Kansas, the they, they lost the Big 12 championship streak. It was about 14, 15 years, whatever it was, where they won the Big 12 championship. And so Ochai Abaji comes in, he's expected to redshirt, and he gets thrown into the fire and has to play right away. And he didn't get to redshirt. He actually played pretty well in limited minutes, um, finished with eight and a half points per game, comes back as a sophomore, comes back last year as a junior, and I thought was really, really, really good, 14 points, 38% from three. And he almost ended up leaving for the NBA draft after last year. And so I just want to give him a quick shout out because what I would say about him is that, and I tweeted this, I know it's not cool to be a college basketball player anymore. I know the thing that you want to do is come in and be a one and done and get out and go to the pros. Here's the thing, though. There's an old saying. You don't want to get to the NBA you want to stay in the NBA. And I think that's some of my frustration with college basketball and frankly, maybe even more so the NBA right now is you just draft these guys totally on potential. They don't have to prove anything. They don't have to do anything. And then you look at the teams that actually matter. It's all older players. It's all veterans. It's all guys that have been there and done that. And you have these really talented young guys just wasting away on the bench. And sometimes it works out and sometimes they develop and sometimes they're with the right team at the right time. And sometimes they just kind of bounce around and it never clicks. And so I give a guy like Ochai Abaji credit. He could have gone pro this year. Maybe he's playing in the G League. Maybe he's at the end of a bench. But you know where he's not? He's not in the NBA at all right now, and he instead decided to come back. I think that is so cool, um, and I think he, you know he bet on himself to get better, and he now looks like the best player on maybe the one or three or four best teams in college basketball, and I think we need to give guys credit like that. I don't think we need to shame a guy for coming back for a senior year, getting his degree, and getting better every single year throughout his college career, so shout out to him. What I would also say is a couple more things in terms of Kansas. One... not only was I really impressed with their depth, I actually think that Bill Self was kind of impressed with their depth. He talked about it at halftime, but some of the guys off the bench, Bobby Pettiford, um, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, Zach Clements, the the big guy, both freshmen, both played good minutes for them. Jalen Coleman lands the seventh-year senior. Yes, seventh year. He got two years because of injuries plus the COVID year. He is now in his seventh year of college basketball, 25 years old. Thought he played well off the bench. And I'll say this for, for Kansas as well. Um, I thought with Kansas, one thing that stood out to me as well is that Remy Martin, I think it's going to take some time. We talked about it on Tuesday's pre, you know, uh, preview show. It's going to take time for Remy Martin. He is not going to figure it out right away, but I think he's going to be really good for Bill Self by the end of the season, 15.6 rebounds, two assists. And finally, I think it's worth noting, Kansas played without probably their second best player in Jalen Wilson, averaged 11 points per game last year. He was out because of a DUI suffered during the, not suffered, but a DUI from the preseason. And so I bring it up to say, Kansas just went into Madison Square Garden, beat Michigan State by 13, and did it without their second best player and without Remy Martin really being fully immersed into what Kansas is doing. I'm just telling you, what we saw on Tuesday night is probably the worst thing, the worst we'll see from Kansas all year. So credit to the Jayhawks. Kaka, kaka. I really like them. 
I really like him. I can't believe I'm doing the caca caca now. Speaking of caca caca and rough, 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 uh, let's take a break. Let's come back talk about the new college football playoff rankings. They are out. Georgia's still awesome. Everybody else we really know nothing about. I will be right back. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. And I do want to switch gears, and I do want to hit on a couple college football topics before we get out of here. And the first is, we got ourselves a new college football playoff poll. It was released on Tuesday night. It was released during uh, the middle of the basketball game, so right after Ochai Abaji was done kicking Michigan State's butt, and right before Trevor Keels was done kicking Kentucky's butt, we got ourselves a new college football playoff poll. Uh, There were two interesting things that came out of it. People freaked out about one thing, so let's talk about it. Let's debate. Let's discuss. Let's do what we do here on the Aratorius Podcast. First of all, let's talk about the new poll. Obviously, the big story coming in was going to be what happened to Michigan State. Michigan State started last week at number three, Georgia one, Alabama two, Michigan State three. They then take a loss to an unranked Purdue team. Now, Purdue is good, and they are ranked in the new poll that came out Tuesday, but this was not a great loss if you're Michigan State and you're fighting for a playoff berth. And so we all wanted to know where they would go. So for context, let me just give you what the top 10 is, and then we'll kind of break down why everybody's freaking out. One is Georgia. No surprise. Kirk Herbstreit even said uh, during the college basketball broadcast, he's like, look, I, I see what all you guys see. It's Georgia. And then there's about six or seven teams right behind them that are all flawed, kind of good, not really good, sort of good on any given day. But that's where college football is right now. And so behind Georgia, let's get to everybody else, to Alabama. Alabama, of course, was number two last week. Oregon is number three. Ohio State is number four. Cincinnati is number five. Michigan is number six. Michigan State is number seven. Oklahoma is eight. Notre Dame is nine. Oklahoma State is 10. And first of all, let let, let me say before we get into Michigan State, I actually kind of like what the college football playoff committee did. I kind of just assumed that Michigan State would fall down the rankings but stay ahead of Cincinnati because obviously the college football playoff committee hates Cincinnati. Um, But at the same time, I thought they did what was right. They took Michigan State was two was three last week behind behind Georgia at one and Alabama two, and they basically took the teams that were four, five, six, and they just moved them up a spot. Oregon goes from from four to three. Ohio State goes from five to four. Cincinnati goes from six to five. That's not the interesting part, though. The interesting part was this: Michigan is ranked number six in the new AP poll in the new college football playoff rankings. Michigan State is ranked number seven. Not sure if you remember, but those two teams actually played each other this year. And it wasn't like in September. It wasn't even, I, was it even in October? I don't know. It was like 10 days ago. It was October 31st, Halloween day, Michigan State beats Michigan. And somehow they have the same record, 8-1. and one. Michigan State has a head-to-head win, and they're behind Michigan, they're behind Michigan in this new poll. And this, of course, comes a week after the committee gave Oregon credit for beating Ohio State head-to-head and put Oregon ahead of Ohio State and kept Oregon ahead of Ohio State. And so, of course, everybody freaked out. Everybody said, last week, you said head-to-head win matters. Now it doesn't. Why is Michigan State behind Michigan? And what I would say is, as Aaron Rodgers once said, relax. First of all, I'll say this. I find it pretty funny that last week I freaked out and I got fired up because Cincinnati was at number six. I thought that was completely unjustified, and Alabama was number two. I definitely thought that was unjustified. And what did everybody tell me? Torres, take a deep breath. Torres, relax. Everything's always going to work out. It always works out by the end of the season. You should know that. You follow this stuff. Well, here's my question. If I'm allowed to freak out 
If I'm not allowed to freak out about Cincinnati being six and Alabama being two last week, why are you allowed to freak out about Michigan being ahead of Michigan State? I thought we all agreed that we're not going to freak out. And on top of that, what I would also say is this. The same argument that you used against me last week. Oh, it'll all figure itself out. Can't you say the same about Michigan and Michigan State? Both teams still have to play Penn State and Ohio State, okay? Michigan plays Penn State this weekend. They play Ohio State the final week of the season. Michigan State plays Ohio State this come next weekend, and then they play Penn State on the final weekend of the season. Both teams still have two teams that they could lose to on the schedule, and even if they both win out, they would both finish 11-1. Michigan State would go to the Big Ten championship game, and if Michigan State wins the Big Ten, they're going to the college football playoff. They're not leaving out a 12-1 team with a head-to-head win over an 11-1 team for a college football playoff spot. Now, the interesting part would be, what do you do with a one-loss Michigan versus an undefeated Cincinnati, a one-loss Michigan versus undefeated Oregon, whatever. The point is, the same argument you used against me last week, don't freak out, it'll work itself out. The same is true for Michigan and Michigan State. I would also say, the committee is starting now to make it very clear that head-to-head wins don't matter. You know how I know? Penn State is 6-3 and unranked. Auburn is 6-3 and three and ranked number 17 in the, in the new poll. So everybody's freaking out about Michigan, Michigan State. How about the fact that Penn State has the exact same record as Auburn, and they are not ranked. Auburn is ranked 17, so obviously at least eight spots ahead of Penn State. Now, I've seen a lot of people speculate the committee just forgot about Penn State, which I think is probably fair, but it doesn't change the fact that, one, SEC bias, I hate to say it, we got a lot of SEC fans that listen, SEC bias is real. But two, head-to-head wins clearly don't matter. But beyond that, There is something else about this situation that I think... No, I haven't heard anybody else talk about this. This is why you come to this show, because I I think on a different level, okay? I'm not calling myself, I don't know, Aristotle or Bill Nye the science guy. I don't know who the great geniuses are of the past, you know, 100, 200, 500,000 years. Confucius. I'm not saying I'm him. I'm not not saying I'm him, but I'm not saying I'm him. Anyway, this is the point I'm trying to make. There is something I think that nobody is talking about that is worth considering. Is it possible that the committee put out Michigan, Michigan State almost as a test balloon to kind of let you know? We know we said last week that head-to-head wins matter, but they don't really matter because I think they did. And I think there's one very specific reason why, because the committee ultimately there is really like like two things could really piss off the public if if they go down the way that they do really three. A two-loss Alabama team gets in, people will freak out. Whether it's fair or not, people will freak out. Cincinnati gets left out, people will freak out if they're undefeated. And finally, the third thing that people will freak out about or could be a huge debate is this. What happens if Oregon and Ohio State both finish 12-1? and What happens if it's very clear by the end of the season that Ohio State is definitively the better team than Oregon? They're blowing everybody out in the Big Ten. They have the better resume. They have the better players. Oregon's limping to the finish line, but Oregon has that head-to-head win over Ohio State. Clearly, at that point, Ohio State would have the better resume. Clearly, at that point, Ohio State would look better. And let's be honest, we all know the TV networks that that run this stuff, the, the powers that be, the people that make the money off this thing, they want in Ohio State over Oregon. And so I believe, and I truly believe this, I think that Tuesday night was a test balloon to just let you know, we told you head-to-head win matters. But we could kind of tweak that and finagle it and twist it the way that we want it, just in case. Just in case we get to a scenario where Ohio State and Oregon are fighting for the final playoff spot. Now, I don't think it'll really happen. I actually think both those teams as one-loss teams will get in ahead of Cincinnati. But I think there's a scenario. I mean, think about it like this. 
So nobody's talking about Oklahoma right now. Oklahoma's 9-0. and The reason that they're ranked number eight is because they haven't played anybody. Well, if Oklahoma finishes 13-0 and or 12-1, and they, they play two ranked teams in the next three weeks. Then they'll play another ranked team in the Big 12 championship game. If they beat three ranked teams or they go 2-1 and against ranked teams, Oklahoma's getting in as a 12-0, 12-1, and or 13-0 Big 12 champion. They just are. We know it, right? So you can't just say, and we'll get to this with Cincinnati in a minute, you can't just say that it's up to the four, five, six teams at the top. Oklahoma is going to move up as they keep winning. But again, I give the committee credit. They started them low. Oklahoma didn't play last week, and so they're not going to rise them. On top of that, what happens if, let's say, Oklahoma finishes 12-1 or 13-0? What happens if Alabama wins out and beats Georgia in the SEC championship game? All of a sudden, you got to put Oklahoma in, got to put Georgia in, Got to put Alabama, a 12-1 SEC champion. And what if it comes down to Oklahoma or Ohio State and Oregon for, those final, for that final spot? I don't think all this is going to happen. I'll be blunt. I kind of think Oregon's taking a loss somewhere along the way. I don't think they're that good, and the teams they play are all tough. Wazoo is kind of weirdly tough. They play Washington State this weekend, kind of a weirdly tough team. Utah is a very tough team. They might have to play Utah twice. And Oregon State just beat Oregon last year. And so I don't think it is going to happen, but I thought it was kind of interesting that the college football playoff committee kind of told you on Tuesday night. They said, look, it matters. Head-to-head is great, but it doesn't really matter. Really quickly, the other big reaction that I had from the college football playoff rankings was that uh, Cincinnati is now at number five. And I saw a lot of interesting kind of... uh, you know, pushback on on Cincinnati on Tuesday night. And I, and I saw the same thing. Oh, everybody was freaking out about Cincinnati last week. Their path is clear. As long as Oregon loses, and as long as Alabama loses in the SEC championship game to Georgia, Cincinnati's in. Cincinnati's in. Basically, they just need Alabama to lose to Georgia and Oregon to lose to uh, someone along the way. And then it'll be Georgia, Oregon, or Georgia, Ohio State, and Cincinnati. First of all, it's not that simple. Again, there are teams that are behind Cincinnati that are going to have a chance to play their way in, okay? There are teams like Oklahoma. Oklahoma, if they finish, tw- is, is behind Cincinnati right now. They finish 12-1 or one or 13-0, they're getting in. As a matter of fact, I'll just be curious to see what happens with Oklahoma if they just win this week and beat Baylor, a top 15 team. How high do they go? Do they get past Cincinnati? Two, on top of that, um, you also have to factor in something else. I'm not positive that Alabama, as a two-loss non-SEC champ, is going to be left out of the college football playoff. Guys and girls, this is why I freaked out last week about Alabama being number two. The committee was telling you, we want Bama in this freaking thing. You know who I give credit to? I used to have Tim Brando on this show all the time. I haven't had Tim Brando on in a while. But he used to call this the big brand invitational or something like that. And it is clear that that's what it is. Alabama's number two right now. Can you see the scenario where Alabama wins out, goes to the SEC championship game, even if they lose, plays Georgia tough. They lose, say, let's say 31 to 20 even. That's the closest game Georgia's played all year since Clemson in week one. You don't think the committee's going to sit there and say, oh, I mean, yeah, they lost for a second time. But they're clearly, look at how good Georgia is. They deserve to be in. Couldn't you see that scenario? I'll take it a step further. I don't think this would happen. But what if Alabama finishes 11-2, or uh, yeah, it would be 11-2 at that point, 
is Texas A&M out of this as a two-loss non-champion? Now, Texas A&M, weirdly, I think, I mean, their, their clearest path is if they go to the SEC championship game and they beat Georgia, they're going to be in the SEC. They're going to be in the playoff, okay? So I'm telling you, everyone's talking about a two-loss Alabama team. If Alabama loses that Iron Bowl and Texas A&M goes to the SEC championship game and beats Georgia, it's going to be hard to, to, to claim Texas A&M is not one of the four best teams in college football. So I don't believe that Cincinnati's path is particularly linear right now, okay? I've said it all along, and this is what I truly believe has to happen. I said it on Friday's show. One, first of all, good thing happened this weekend. Wake Forest lost. ACC's out. I don't think a one-loss Wake Forest is getting in ahead of an undefeated Cincinnati. Two, on top of that, this is what else you need to happen. Oregon has to lose. Oregon has to lose. They have to lose somewhere. Knock them out. Three, I think Alabama has to lose before the SEC championship game. They play New Mexico State this week. Don't think it's going to happen. Arkansas next week. Auburn the following week. Lose to Arkansas, lose to Auburn. If you even get to the SEC championship game at that point, you already have two losses, probably suffer a third against Georgia. That changes the narrative. But what I'm telling you is I see all these people saying, oh, just Cincinnati, all they got to do is win. Just win, and Oregon loses, and Alabama. It's not that easy. It's never that easy with the committee. It's never that easy when you're talking about the big brands that make the most money and draw the most eyeballs. I don't think it's fair, but I do believe that is what Cincinnati is up against at this point. All right, last little topic before we get out of here, and it is a topic that we have hit on quite a bit on this show over the last couple weeks, and it is the present and future of Scott Frost. And trust me, I wasn't. I, I talked about it two weeks ago against Purdue after Nebraska lost to Purdue. I talked about it last week against Ohio State, and I really wasn't planning on talking about it again today. But over the last couple weeks, I have kind of done the full gauntlet on Scott Frost. After the Purdue game, I said, look, that kind of felt like the last stand. You lose at home to Purdue at the end of year four. You're not coming back for a fourth year. And immediately, I had a lot of you reach out to me and say, Torres, you might want to look into this one a little bit more. Not saying he's definitively coming back, but it's probably a little bit of a stronger argument than you're probably giving it credit for. And so I did my homework. I called a few people that would know, some smart people. And by the end of the Ohio State game, I thought it was at least a possibility that he would come back. And I thought personally that it would be the right decision. I didn't know if he would come back, but my argument, and I made it on Monday's show, was pretty simple. Nebraska is clearly heading in the right direction. They have played four teams that are currently ranked in the top 10. They lost to uh, three of them by one possession, and, two, and the fourth one was Ohio State where they were driving to take the lead with six minutes to go and end up losing by nine. They are right there. They are right on the cusp. I don't know if Scott Frost is the guy to get them there, but my argument was basically – um, he deserves another year to find out because this is not a program that is bottomed out. This is not a program like LSU that is clearly trending in the wrong direction or Florida, which is clearly trending in the wrong direction. This program is trending in the right direction. It is just a question of whether or not Scott Frost is the one that is going to get them over the hump and to the next level. And so on Monday, we did get some clarification on Scott Frost's future as the school announced that he will return for another season. Now, the announcement obviously comes with some caveats. He's going to take a pay cut restructure contract his buyout which was owed at 20 million dollars per year uh will probably 20 million dollars per year 20 million dollars in total buyout money will be reduced and he's obviously gonna have to make some coaching changes because he fired half of his staff on monday afternoon but let me just say i do think this was the right decision it was for all the reasons that i said and i'll even take it a step further um i understand that if his name wasn't scott frost that he might not have this opportunity. I understand that if he wasn't a former player who played at Nebraska, is from Nebraska, he might not have this opportunity. But it also goes back to what I said a few days ago. 
He gets Nebraska. He gets what they're about. He knows what it will take to get them over the hump. They're in the process of getting there. Now it's just a question of whether he'll get there or not. Couple quick reactions since I really talked about this a lot on Monday's show. I don't really want to belabor the point. First of all, again, I just think point blank it was the right decision. This isn't a this isn't a teardown situation like it is at USC. This isn't a program that is trending in the wrong direction like LSU. This is a program where the foundation of the house has been built. They are so much better than they were two, three, four years ago. And you can debate me, you can argue it, but it's indisputable. You lose by Ohio State, just as an example, you lose at home to Ohio State 26-17 on Saturday, okay? Well, guess what? These two programs played back in 2019 in Lincoln, and the final score was 48-7. to So you can see progress just in that one game and just in that one score, and so I'm not saying they're going to be a national championship contender or even a Big Ten contender next year or the year after if Scott Frost comes back. But what I am saying is they're on the right direction, and to go out there in an uncertain coaching market at this time where LSU is already open, USC is already open, Penn State could be open if James Franklin takes the USC or LSU job, Uh, Florida, we don't know what's going on there. It just didn't seem to make sense to bring in somebody from the outside and try to start this thing over when Scott Frost is clearly building it. But again, we will see if it gets over the hump. What I will also say, I give the media a lot of credit. And it's really interesting, right? Because, uh, listen, I criticize the media all the time. I tore them down 10 minutes ago when I was talking about Trevor Keels and, and Duke basketball and all that stuff. But at the same time, I think the, the media handled this one well. Uh, because everybody in the media wants to have the hot take and the strongest opinion and get their voice out, make sure their voice is heard. But I think a lot of people in the media saw the same things that I saw in this scenario. Not saying that Scott Frost is the answer. But not saying definitively that he's not the answer, and this isn't the typical rebuild in college football. This isn't the typical program in college football. It's not to say that Nebraska's a bad job. It's not to say that they don't have great fan support and great facilities. But in modern college football, it is not an easy place to win, especially relative to 20, 30 years ago when they were competing for national championships. I would also say I give Nebraska fans credit as well. They're being extremely patient. They, too, understand that it is not the job that it once was. And for people who don't really understand how or why it's not still a great job, it's not that it's not a great job. It's just in this era of college football, it's so much harder to win uh, for Nebraska specifically. First of all, we talk about jobs all the time on this show. The bottom line is a job is essentially as good as the recruits that you can recruit to get it, okay? So Miami is a great job because you're in Miami. And if you can lock down Miami... You can win national championships, five national championships under four different head coaches. It can be done at Miami if you know what you're doing. LSU is maybe the best job in the SEC because they are in a talent-rich state with no other Power 5 schools there. Ohio State, it's the same deal. USC should be great because of all the great players in Southern California. Michigan, on the other hand, very good job, historically great job, but in the modern era of college football, there's just not that many players in Michigan. Notre Dame, it's a small Catholic school. It was great 100 years ago. Small Catholic school, middle of nowhere, hard to recruit to. Nebraska, a couple things with Nebraska. One, there just aren't that many players around there. It doesn't make it a bad job, a, a bad school, a bad state. They're great people, but there just aren't enough players. On top of that, and they talked about it on the broadcast on Saturday, um, they were really hurt by leaving the Big 12. Because when you were in the Big 12, you could recruit Texas, you could recruit Oklahoma, and you'd go back and play in Texas and Oklahoma a couple times a year. Now you can't recruit Texas and say, hey, come to Nebraska, because you're going to be playing Purdue and Illinois and Wisconsin and maybe Ohio State or maybe Michigan or whatever. And so 
in this case, this job is not easy. And so I think the media, even to its credit, really understood what the situation was and what Nebraska was working against it. And I'll give the fans credit too. Like I said, the fans understand it's not 1996 anymore. They just want to be competitive. They want to get to the top of the Big Ten West. And if you get to the top of the Big Ten West, you're competing for Big Ten titles. And then maybe down the road in a 12-team playoff, you're competing for playoff bursts again. Finally, what I would say, I'm just happy for the players. And I, and I think it may, and I should even backtrack. I'm kind of just throwing out a lot of different thoughts here. I think the timing made sense. I give Nebraska AD Trev Alberts credit. And again, I know if Trev Alberts wasn't a Cornhusker, maybe this move doesn't get made. I know if Scott Frost wasn't a legend, maybe this move doesn't get made. But I do think there are two guys, the AD who played at Nebraska, played in the NFL, and Scott Frost who played at Nebraska, played in the NFL. They understand this job. They understand what it's about. They understand it's going to take time. But what I love about, and it's great that he's not an outsider, because if Trev Alberts was an outsider, maybe he makes this move and maybe he doesn't understand all of the things that I'm talking about. But what I would also say is I love that this move was made in the middle of November with two games left. Not because it's going to salvage the season, not because these kids are going to play in bowl, going to go to a bowl game, but because of this. It's because of the fact that the players can now play loose. They don't have to worry about if I make a mistake, my coach is going to be gone and it's going to be my fault. That is a real thing that players, like players can say, I've talked to players. When your coach gets fired, you feel like you are personally responsible for it. And so I think it's great for Nebraska that their kids can just go out and play and focus on football and not have to worry about all the other stuff, all the other noise. So great day for Nebraska. Uh, and I'll just say this, Scott Frost, it's on you now, man. I've defended you. I think a lot of people in the media have defended you. It's go time. Next year is year five. Everyone on the roster is your player. Um, oh, by the way, you just fired half your coaching staff, including a couple guys that you brought with you from uh, Central Florida. We're going to find out if you're the problem, if development is the problem, if little things that are being missed at practice, dumb penalties and, 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 and special teams, if that's the problem, that's going to fall on you. But what I would also say is there's a pretty good example of, of that this exact plan can work. Remember, Michigan last year went 2-4. and four. Michigan last year restructured Jim Harbaugh's contract. Michigan last year made him a fire half the staff and bring in a bunch of new guys. And it's worked out well for Michigan. They are now 6 in the college football playoff poll, 8-1. and one. Don't think they'll finish there, but it's worth noting that as well. So, yeah, one more year, Scott Frost, and we're going to find out really quick if he is the guy permanently or not. And if he's not, you can't say that he didn't have enough time to figure it out. All right. That is it for this segment, this this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. A lot of ground covered on today's show. Fun show. Uh, it's so great to have college hoops back, guys and girls. Before we get out of here, I want to do all the reminders. Make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Appreciate you guys. The show is continuing to grow. And thank you guys so much for everything that you do for us. Uh, if you're not subscribed, iTunes, Spotify, Google Music, Amazon Music, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, all those great networks. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Helps us move up the iTunes charts. If you're into gambling, make sure to find the College Football Gambling Show with Aaron Torres. Uh, college Football Betting it is. Uh, also, make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter. At Aaron Torres Pod, I'm going to be at the UCLA Villanova game on Friday night, so I'll do some videos, some pictures. I'll look cool. I'll pose with uh, Mick Cronin. Maybe no, I won't be posing with Mick Cronin. But make sure you're following on the social media pages. Make sure you're checking Aaron Torres online. Make sure you are following the YouTube page as well. That is all for today's show. Shout out to Torn Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. Shout out to Ochai Abaji. Kaka kaka. I'll be back.
on Friday. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.